Well, hello, and welcome into the Cultural Coven. I'm your host, Nicola Roy, and I hope you're having a great week. In this week's episode, I have a really interesting guest for you. It is none other than the brilliant Scotsman newspaper theatre critic, freelance journalist, social and political columnist, Joyce McMillan. So it's a bit of a role reversal because Joyce is usually the person who's reviewing or interviewing us. Joyce is a bit of an institution in Scottish theatre, having worked in it for over 30 years and gaining huge respect for her ability to succinctly sum up a piece of theatre. And she's even published a few books on it too. Here we talk about her path into the arts, her vast knowledge of Scottish theatre, a bit about politics and the Critics Award for Theatre in Scotland, she does a cracking creative challenge, and she even tells me a few outrageous stories. My wallflower self was shocked, friends. Shocked. No, but seriously, I feel like I have learned loads. So go get a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Well, welcome into the Cultural Coven, Joyce. You are, of course, our fourth guest, and it is lovely to have you here. It was a year yesterday since theatres closed down, which is a pretty depressing place to be in, but it's really nice to see you remotely. You are a stalwart of Scottish theatre, an integral part of the community, but I want to know, how's the rock and roll lockdown been for you, Joyce? Banana bread making and Joe Wicks workouts have been pretty popular. Have you uh, partaken (laughs) in any of that stuff? (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I've actually been very busy. I've been one of these uh, working very hard from home um, people. And the, the problem really has been not spending my whole life on screen, staring at the screen, because it's like you need the screen for everything. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's been a busy lockdown for me, which is strange. Obviously, when all the theatres closed, I thought there'd be nothing to write about. Um, you know, um, and some papers just terminated their live arts coverage immediately yeah. on the grounds that there weren't any um, live arts. But actually, our arts editor, the Scotsman, Roger Cox, took a very different view. He said that he thought we ought to try and keep covering the live arts artists and organisations, you know, as they sort of made their way um, through lockdown. So we've been doing that. So I've been writing a feature every week, talking to everybody, you know, particularly the big theatre organisations about how they're coping with this, how they're trying to keep employing, you know, the vast army of freelancers that actually make most of the theatre that we see, but but the the venue relief money that um, the big um, theatres have had in Scotland from the Scottish Government and had a condition attached to it that some of it had to be used, a lot of it had to be used for employing those freelance theatre makers. So, um, so, so, you know, it's been interesting talking to them all about how they've been trying to do that. Um, I've also been talking to individual artists about their journeys um, through lockdown. And then in addition to that, um, Roger invented this um, Scotsman Sessions idea, which you've done a couple of them, um, Nicola. Um, and that was an idea to actually commission little fragments of live performance and um, you know across all the art forms music dance theater spoken word um, and then write a little program note um, for for that every week so in each art form we have one every week with a program note so i've been writing those and then of course i always also write about politics as well as theater yeah. and politics has not only not stopped but has got ever more frenzied yeah hasn't it just so joyce you are the leading theater critic for the scotsman newspaper I'd love to know what brought you to reviewing theatre as opposed to, say, uh, films or books? 
Well, it, it's it's really quite. Um, it was it was something very very deep that happened to me in my late twenties, my mid to late twenties, I would say. Um, up till then, I had been. Um, I was a student at St Andrews in the early seventies. Um, when although St Andrews has always been quite a posh university with a, with a, a very strong sort of conservative um, student um, association and all that. And it was like that when I was there in the early 70s, but it was also a time when a lot of people were rebelling against that. So there was a very active sort of student left at St Andrews, included people like Alex Salmon, actually. And, and I, I um, oh. yeah, he, he switched to the SNP quite early, I think. He was a Labour student when he first arrived, but he... Um, uh, switch to the SNP, but anyway, um, um, yeah, so I mean, there are a very interesting crowd of people in the St Andrews left, and I got involved in that maybe in my sort of second year right. at university after I'd kind of found my feet a bit, and um, and I um, I got very involved in that, so I'd been a sort of um, student activist, and then, um, and then um, involved in kind of left-wing um, you know, various forms of left-wing campaigning, uh, you know, from the age of kind of 2021 20, onward. Sure. Um, and after I left university, I spent a sort of a year in London and Durham, where my then fiancé was doing a postgraduate thing. And then I came back to Edinburgh, um, went to Murray House. And I, I suppose like a lot of people from kind of lower middle class backgrounds going into higher education, I just thought I would become a teacher. You know, that, that was what you did really um, and I discovered really pretty much to my shock during my year at Murray House in Edinburgh that I really really didn't like teaching I right. didn't like being locked up in a school all day with, with it wasn't that I, I didn't I loved the interaction with 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 those of the kids who wanted to be involved in education but you know, 13 and 14 year olds, you know, from the various spots around Edinburgh that were not the most privileged, a lot of them just didn't want to be there. And I just felt I was wasting whatever skills or capacities I might have as a human being, you know, trying to kind of physically control a lot of kids that were just trying to get out of the classroom, basically. And, and, and I, I just thought, this is not, this is more like being a prison guard. I don't fancy it, you know. And, um, and I felt a bit imprisoned myself. So I suppose it was funny because it was like a confrontation with a part of myself that I hadn't really been that aware of when I was at school or when I was a student. You know, I'd always been a really good student. You know, I'd always yeah. done well academically. Um, I'd always sort of done my homework on time. I'd always, I went to Paisley Grammar School, which was a very, very demanding school academically and, and pretty... I mean, it's, it's motto, um, you know, above the, the sort of podium in the school hall was learn boy or get out. You know, it was founded for wow. boys. Yeah, discape where out abbey, learn boy or get out. And if you were a girl, it was fine as long as you behaved, you know, as if you were a boy. So there was, there was no, um, you know, there was, there, was, there was kind of no give in the system at all. And I learned, I mean, the amount of academic work I did in my teens, and it has stood me in good stead you know I learned a lot of things I learned French and German to kind of speakable standard and I can still speak them you know all of that Amazing. but I just you know and and um we did huge amounts of English literature so I've never had to be intimidated by anybody knowing anything about Shakespeare or anything like that because I always know more about Shakespeare than any of them and you know I, I so it's it was a great grounding in that sense. And I was the kind of kid that could stand up to it, but it really yeah. was quite hard work, you know, and I never really lifted my head. And then when I went to St. Andrews, I got involved in the politics 
and that side of me began to emerge yeah. um, and, and, and compete with my sort of academic work a little bit, but I still did well academically. I got first, all the rest of it. Um, um, but then somehow when it came to the teaching, it was like I'd reached my limit. And I realized that there was something in me that was more, I just needed more freedom and, okay. more, and, a, and a more sort of creative life. Mm -hmm. I began to really, really miss the amount of um, time that I had spent with literature. When I was a student, I began to miss the poetry, the plays, oh. um, and, and all that kind of aspect. I found myself going into galleries and just staring at pictures as if I was really needing to sort of feed that sort of visual and sensual and, the artistic and side. lyrical part of me. Yeah, And, um, and um, then I suppose it was... It was sort of round about then I was I was trying to write a PhD um, about Ben Johnson's plays and I was beginning to realize that I didn't fancy the world of academia either it seemed very 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 oh, what's the word it's incredibly kind of formalized it's like you've got to go through all these hoops and write all these footnotes and master all these sort of technical hurdles in order to become a respectable academic and publish stuff that nobody is ever going to read except <laughs> for two academics that hate your guts because you're the other person you know and you just think I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm not playing this game you sure. know I want to engage with with life in some way but in a way that's creative yeah and at this point I suppose theatre just kind of came into my life um, you know, I was living in Edinburgh. I was trying to do this PhD. I suppose I was entitled to a lot of quite cheap tickets for things. I had friends that were quite interested in theatre and I just suddenly started going to things, you know, in the Edinburgh Festival and at the Lyceum, which at that time was being run by Stephen MacDonald. Um, and Stephen had his ups and downs in the main house, but at that time they had the, the Lyceum studio, which was uh, round in Grindley Street, um, mm -hmm. where the Traverse now is on that spot. Um, and in the studio, he used to do amazing productions that really had his heart and soul in them, you know. And he did this production in about 1977 or 8 of Edward II, Marlowe's Edward II, which is a great play about homosexuality written way back then, you know, in, yeah. the, in the 1590s, um, um, about Edward II and his lover, Piers Gaveston, and how they were torn apart and destroyed, both of them killed by the, the, the political establishment, you know. And Edward II executed in a particularly horrible way. And, and, um, and um, and at that point, I just something came to life in my brain. I was sitting watching that show, and I thought, yes, this is the place where ideas can walk about and be tested against real human experience. The audience doesn't see anything in them. They don't laugh. They don't cry. They're not interested. You know. So I, I, it's, to me, it was like a living laboratory where ideas and humanity, the sort of physical, the intellectual, the spiritual could all come together. It was basically kind of love at first sight in a funny way. It wasn't I hadn't been to the theatre before, you know, I'd been taken, you know, as, as a school kid to the theatre and gone to some, a few things as a student. It was just like suddenly it came into focus for me and I just saw what it was, you know, and it became this huge part of my life and I <clears throat> knew somebody that was working at the BBC who offered me a chance to review theatre uh, during the Edinburgh Fringe on a, on a morning programme that they called Festival View.
Well, what a great opportunity, Joyce, and clearly they spotted your talent. Now, you, of course, are pretty unique because you are not only a theatre reviewer, but a social and political columnist. And at the moment in Scotland, we are in a time of significant political discussion. We used to have very successful politically driven theatre companies such as 784, companies that challenged the politics of the day and toured all across Scotland. Now, these companies were gone by the time I graduated, but I feel like more than ever, we could benefit from a 784. Do you think there's a gap to be filled in Scottish theatre? Um, yes, yes, I do. I've, I've thought a lot about this because um, a lot of that older generation will now say, oh, there's no touring theatre like there was in the days of 784. And I know, because I see the stuff, that there is actually a lot of touring theatre. But what there isn't is what there was then in the sort of 70s and early 80s, which was a network of touring companies made up mainly of 784, its spin-off company that, that, that did more like rock music, which was Wildcat, um, Wildcat Stage Productions, um, and um, but had exactly the same politics. And then Borderline, which was run uh, by Morag Fullerton at that time. She was a young, brilliant director at that time, and now she's a, a slightly older, brilliant director. Um, but um, Borderline, um, which had exactly the same ideology, but was based in, in Ayrshire. And so they were like together, they were building up a touring network, which was not only it was not only that they toured, it was that they toured shows which had a kind of similar political purpose behind them, which was okay. to go into people's communities and talk to them, or at least entertain them about their lives, you know, their voices, um, or voices very like their own, um, and, and voices and, and um, ideas and stories that reflected their realities but also their kind of fantasies and dreams and, and all the rest of it yeah. so it was it was wasn't just a touring network it was an ideologically coherent touring network so that mm. gave it a much higher profile in national life and of course it had these wonderful spokespeople i mean notably john mcgrath who was just the most charismatic man who ever lived i mean i don't ever met him nicola but because I met him briefly, but I've heard so only briefly, but I've heard so many wonderful things about this man. I mean, the charisma and the intelligence, and the, I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, he was he was a really outstanding person, and he was a fantastic um, spokesperson for all of that. And so was his it was his wife Elizabeth McLennan, who's sadly also no longer with us, and of course Elizabeth's brother David, who. Um, who was the founder of Wildcat with Dave Anderson and then went on to, um, to found A Play A Pie and A Pint, which has changed the whole landscape of Scottish theatre. So those people were, you know, an astonishing creative generation. And it's interesting that John McGrath had been at university, I think in Oxford, I think it was Oxford, at, at the same time as Giles Havergal, who mm. at the same time that they were founding 784 Scotland became the artistic director or one of the three artistic directors at the Citizens. So although the Citizens work was outwardly completely different from what was going on with 784, there was this kind of bond between them. So they were always communicating. The work wasn't the same. There was a kind of network of creative energy which was about not accepting any of the existing categories of British theatre you know Giles wanted to do something that was European and spectacular and would 
put Glasgow on the European theatre map and never mind the British theatre map, you know. Um, and, yeah. and, and John wanted to do something um, that was particularly to do with reaching out to um, working class communities in the Central Belt and Highland communities. It was a tremendous radical moment at the beginning of the 70s. And I suppose the theatre that I started to review towards the end of the 70s was almost, had really been shaped and changed and completely revitalised by that, you know? You mentioned there, Joyce, that these companies reach different communities. And I think fundamentally that's what everyone wants in our industry. We all want theatre to be more accessible. However, let's be honest, it's still pretty expensive for your average to low-income families. I think to make it accessible to various communities, surely we have to look at pricing. Yes, yes. Well, it was interesting that early 70s movement because it had these two prongs. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, a 784 and later Wildcat, which launched, I think, about 1978, were taking work into working class communities or yeah. into Highland communities um, and, and um, trying to reach people that way. Um, um, but at the Citizens, Giles Havergal and, and Robert... David Macdonald and Philip Prowse, what they did was they, they there was at that time this exposed um, north wall of the citizens that faced onto the river. It was just like a big blind yeah. brick wall. And on it, they painted all seats 50 pence. Yes. That is really what you need to say to the audience of Glasgow to make them know that this theatre is for them. It will yes. not cost you much. And if you hate it, you can say so and you won't have wasted 25 quid. I remember when I was in youth theatre at the Lyceum and they did free previews, or was it five pounds? Anyway, and people would queue for hours around the block and it definitely seemed to attract a younger and, and different demographic. Now we're of course not disputing that theatres are under financial constraints and I don't pretend to be an accountant, but I do think that pricing is a major factor in accessibility. And honestly, as an actor, I would much rather play to a full house. And actually talking of actors, um, in our pre-chat there, Joyce, you said there is an infamous Traverse tale. Please do tell. Um, one thing that I did source earlier in my career was to write the history of the first um, 25 years of the Traverse. And here's my new book about the Traverse. Um, you can, it's difficult to get now, unfortunately, because it only had a wee short print run. But that was published in 1988, which was the 25th anniversary of the Traverse. Um, anyway, um, the Traverse, yeah, was, was launched in Edinburgh. This was really before my time, um, and it was yeah. before the decade uh, I mean, it was the decade before I started reviewing, so I, I really knew nothing about it. I was, I was 10 at the time the Traverse was launched. But it was launched in the early 60s by this famous consortium of people, including Richard DeMarco, Jim Haynes, um, and two professional um, people who had actually come down from Pit Lockery. They got fed up with Pit Lockery, the theatre in the hills, and the rest oh, yeah. of the there. They had, they had come down from Pit Lockery and decided to launch themselves into radical um, 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 Edinburgh theatre. They were called Terry Lane and John Malcolm and Terry Lane in particular before he went to Pitlochry had worked at Scarborough which was Britain's first real established theatre in the round um, Alan Aitborn at Scarborough um, and so he knew about this staging that was transverse which was like the audience on two banks 
facing a sort of central stage that was a bit like a runway. And he, um, he saw this room in this ex-brothel underneath the castle, which the, this odd consortium of people had kind of got for the base of the Traverse. It used to be called Kelly's Paradise, this room in James Court where the, the Traverse was launched. Um, and, um, and he said, well, that would be good for a transverse stage. Um, they got some seats from the old cinema down the bottom of the high street, um, which was being um, closed at that time and cleared out. I think it's now the, the Children's Museum at the bottom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they got some old seating, tip-up seating from there, and they put in this, this um, transverse um, stage but somebody copied it down wrong and thought it was traverse not transverse so so, so that's how it got its name yeah yeah anyway so they launched and of course their aim was to be um doing this uh, european avant-garde repertoire which was not being much done in britain at the time in fact a lot of it hadn't been done in britain at all a lot of these were british premieres kind of authorized by the publisher john calder who became a member of the Traverse Committee, and he was like this hugely enthusiastic publisher of avant-garde European writing and of Samuel Beckett mm. um, in, in the UK. So Calder had a, a strong influence on the repertoire. And they launched with this double bill of a play called Orisons uh, by a playwright called Arabal and, um, and, um, and Sartre's We Clove, which has a stabbing in it. And um, the cast included the wonderful Colette O'Neill, who's very much still with us. I don't know if she's still acting, but she certainly was a few years ago. Um, And um, Colette, um, um, on the second night, something went wrong in the stabbing scene. I I don't know whether the knife was the wrong knife or I've never quite got to the bottom of what happened, but she really got stabbed. In, in the, in the oh, stabbing okay. scene. It was freezing cold weather. It was January 1963. Um, the weather was absolutely um, freezing. It was Baltic. Um, it, was, it, it had opened on the, this, it, this was like the 3rd of January. It opened on the 2nd and this was the second night. Um, and um, it soon became apparent that she was really dying. And and um, so they ran around phoning ambulances and everything, got her to the Royal and they managed to save her life. But literally, if this, this thing had gone in at a slightly different angle, she'd have been dead. And um, so she recovered. I mean, she was young and fit and, uh, and made, made a quick recovery. But in a sense, it was the strangest thing because Calder, who was never um, shy of publicity, um, bounced up to the office and... Um, the wonderful secretary of the organization was phoning for an ambulance and said, never mind the ambulance, call the press, we'll never get publicity like this again. I'm afraid to say it was true. It launched the Traverse as about the most sensational theatre venue in the UK. It is terrible that it happened to her, but it is a rather sensational story. Someone must have got in a lot of trouble for that, I imagine. Or, uh, or were things just different then? I mean, people just didn't care, you know, and the, and the, I mean, people used to have sex on the stairs up to the, the stage and everything because they felt it could have put them in a good mood for the performance. It was absolutely astonishing what went on. Sounds like a wonderful <laughs> time in theatre. What happened? <laughs> well, health and safety happened, which is good because it keeps people alive. <laughs> <laughs> Cultural Coven is delighted to have musical support from singer-songwriter, musician, member of the Red Hot Chili Pipers, and very importantly, a fifer, Cameron Barnes. This song, Coming Home, and the rest of Cameron's music is available on all the main streaming platforms. So go on, download it and have a wee dance about your kitchen. 
Thanks, Cameron, for letting us use this tune. I think as someone being reviewed, I have an idea of what I think the role of the critic to be. But I would be interested to know what you see the role of the critic as, Joyce. I think it's, it's simpler than people think. I think you do have a duty to assess what you've seen. Um, so, I mean, obviously you can't say how it's been for everyone, but you can be aware of the audience reaction around you and you can be aware of your own reaction. And in the end, all you can do is ask yourself, did I really enjoy that or not? Mm-hmm. And if I did enjoy it, why? And if I didn't, why? That's all you can do. And then, and then you try to explain that sure. in, in a short review. So um, that's really, to me, that is the essence of the job. But what you bring to that job is like, it has to be your whole being as a as a a a man or a woman as a a, a, or or you know a person of 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 neither gender you have to you have to bring your whole self to that and yourself as a citizen as a member of society as somebody involved in the political streams of your culture and i mean two things were happening at the time when i became a theater critic one was the advent of um, Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, which happened in the first year that I was doing theatre reviews. And the other really was a whole lot of changes in Scotland um, consequent on that. Um, And and I suppose uh, I found theatre important to me as a a citizen, you know, as as a sort of citizen of the world, in two ways, or maybe three ways. One was that it offered a collective experience at a time when there was an increasing emphasis on individualism. Mm -hmm. And I thought, however I live through these Thatcher years, I want to be able several times a week to go into a room with my fellow human beings and experience something that's collective, that is a shared experience. Mm -hmm. So I can know how people are living and reacting collectively even at a time when various forms of collective living are actually beginning to be fragmented and destroyed, you know, like small close communities and trade unions and all of that. And then I suppose, uh, secondly, um, the coming of Thatcher um, and the Thatcher period um, really forced a lot of Scots to think about um, what they wanted their future to be. You know, there was a huge rejection of Thatcherite ideology in Scotland. Really, I would say at least 75% of the population of Scotland instinctively and immediately rejected that ideology of there is no such thing as society and all of that. But how was that going to be articulated? How was it going to be expressed? You've got to remember at that time there was no Scottish government. If a Conservative government was elected at Westminster, then we got a row of four or five um, Conservative ministers in the Scottish office and they ran Scotland. Um, And even if 75% or more of our MPs were not Conservative, which began to happen in the 1980s, you know? So, so, um, so... it was a moment of saying, this can't go on anymore. And, mm-hmm. and it was what gradually evolved into the movement for the Scottish Parliament in the late 1980s and 1990s, which I was also very, very involved with. Yes. Um, but it really began more with a kind of awareness 
of articulating a different culture. And that was very strongly expressed in theatre. It was expressed in all sorts of ways. I mean, I remember a dear late Charlie Novzelski, who died a couple of years ago, started um, that the, uh, Pope John Paul had just been elected the Polish Pope. And I remember Charlie starting to do these weird little Polish plays that John Paul had written when he was young, you know, and doing them in the in the Astoria ballroom at Abbey Mount. And, 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 um, and just connecting with things that were not to do with a kind of um, right-wing sort of British culture or state, you know, um, connecting with, with everything European. Um, um, you know, the citizens were still there connecting with everything European. In fact, they were at their absolute height in the early 1980s. They were going sure. to festivals all over Europe. They were, they were, they were, um, had a regular slot at the Roundhouse in London. They were doing their version of Proust, A Waste of Time. They were doing a wonderful um, Goldoni comedies. I mean, it was absolutely, you would have been in your element actually, Nicola. Alice Lockhead, I think, was a very important figure in that because her poems and her voice began to be taught in schools and people began to hear this this kind of thing that was Scottish, but sort of aware of its own history, but forward-looking, basically. Yes, contemporary at the same time, wasn't it? New and contemporary. And people began to shake off this idea that anything that was Scottish must be kind of nostalgic and a thing of the past. And and, and it was all to do with the postmodern as well. I mean, John Byrne was really, I, I mean, I think John Byrne, great postmodernist, and he, he really, you know, refined that thing of being ultra local and sort of ultra global at the same time, you know, sort of, sort of plugged into, you know, it was absolutely back Snedden Street in Paisley, but it was also plugged into the great sort of trends of Western culture, you know, and, and people's brains just exploded when they first saw the Slab Boys. They thought, oh my God, you know, this, this just changes my whole idea of what being working class and Scottish can p- possibly be like, because it was just so wildly creative and connected to everything. That's fascinating and something that I can identify with because I'm ashamed to say right now, but growing up, I would shirk away from anything, particularly Scottish. It it felt a bit sort of shortbread and like I mean it was Andy Stewart or nothing. Not yeah. I mean, all power to Andy, but you know, it wasn't forward looking. You couldn't no. use it on that. <laughs> Absolutely. When I came across writers like Liz Lockhead, it was a revelation. I thought oh, so you can speak in Scots and it can still be colourful and contemporary and deal with universal issues. And it changed my perspective because now working in Scots is one of my favourite things. And interestingly, actually, something is shifting in our theatrical community at the moment where people are openly expressing their pride in being a Scottish-based artist. Anyway, that's fascinating stuff, but I think it is now time to move on to our creative challenge. Your one this week is actually reflecting on our past creative challenges. We asked Ricky Ross, Elaine C. Smith and Ian Rankin to rewrite the last few lines of well-known songs and books. And we thought it would be fun, Joyce, to ask you to rewrite a wee mini review of them. The first one is Ricky Ross's Beauty School Dropout from Greece, which was one of my particular favourites. Could you give us your review, please, Joyce? Well... I thought Ricky um, entered into the spirit of the thing here, definitely. Um, and I actually um, um, rather loved the way he did this, which was by producing rhymes that weren't quite rhymes. Which is quite a, quite a, I mean, I don't know if that's something you can get off with more if you're a songwriter. Maybe it is than if you're just uh, writing poetry um, for the page. But I thought they, I thought that um, it was, it was, it was, 
it was quite sly and very entertaining the way he did that and it made me think that maybe we underestimate the extent to which good songwriting is about that kind of cheeky wordcraft you know and um, so I, I enjoyed that aspect of, of, of Ricky's, Ricky's, Ricky's um, response to his cultural challenge very much so I think about you kind of three and a half to four stars for Ricky. Oh, three and a half to four stars. I love it. Okay, <laughs> let's give you, uh, we'll go for our second one, which was Elaine C. Smith's version of I Know Him So Well, um, which was by Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon. Well, I, this this was just absolutely sensational. I mean, Elaine actually um, has two songs there for people that listen to the whole of um, Elaine's Coven. Um, and, um, and on both instances, Elaine just went straight for the jugular on the feminist angle. She's fantastic. Um, if anyone's ever seen Elaine's stand-up set, which she's kind of works on all the time, um, it's very, very feminist. And, um, and of course, feminism and, and women's politics have been another great strand in in all my sort of life and activism yeah. and thinking about theatre. So I appreciate that very much, but really what Elaine did with these two um, cultural challenges was amazing. I mean, one of them was It's Hot, which she immediately related to the menopause and ended up by asking if she could have a swash of somebody's fire pose. <laughs> and, 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 and then uh, I just, I mean, it really was a bit of a kind of um, comedic work of art, what she did with I Know Him So Well, because she, within about four lines, she constructed it into a story about a woman whose boyfriend's been stolen by her friend Jeanette, who is no longer her best mate, um, with the iconic line, I know him so well. And instead of giving it with that, she says, I'm fine by myself. So that was absolutely tremendous. Five stars for Lee. <laughs> Yay. And our third one was Ian Rankin, who gave his own alternative ending to a section from a Mills and Boone novel. What's your review, Joyce? Well, needless to say, in slightly muted style, um, Ian, Ian um, decided to turn this into a murder mystery. So it was a tea party at some place called St. Somethings, whether a church fete or a school, I could not tell. But, um, but, but he um, decided that everyone who had attended this thing was dead and that it turned out to be the, be the, um, be the uh, result of a deliberate poisoning. So um, this is a particularly dark and Rankin-esque thing, which no doubt took place in Leafy, um, South Edinburgh. And although it was muted, it was fairly lethal. So again, like Ricky, I'd say three and a half to four for Ian. Thank you very much for your brilliant reviews, Joyce. We really appreciate it. And we should be passing on to, um, to uh, Aline and Ian <laughs> and Ricky. And actually, that brings me on to a little um, question. So obviously, you write your own um, reviews, but can you put something to bed for myself and a lot of actors? Do you choose how many stars go on your reviews? Because there is this chat amongst actors that editors sometimes decide the stars, which feels ludicrous to me. What is the truth? No, no, no. We put the stars on ourselves. I that. I mean, it, it, it does sometimes happen that there's mistakes. Right. Like, you put four stars on a thing and for some reason it appears in print with only three and you have to go running around trying to get it corrected. <laughs> um, I mean, that can happen, but that's just an error. No, no, it's, it's not. I mean, very occasionally, if you've got a good editor, we're increasingly scanty in journalism, of course, because a lot of copy just goes straight on the page, hardly, you know, edited at all. But um, if you've got a good editor who's on the case, they might say, Joyce, this is a very enthusiastic reviewer. Are you sure you don't want to give it five stars? Or 
that sounds a bit half-hearted. Why are you giving it four? You know, uh-huh. and 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 um, and they, they may, but I mean that happens about once a year. No, it's completely the writer's decision how many stars they put on. I I thought that, and also you were um, you did some lovely singing here yourself, Joyce, and I believe you do do some singing. Have you ever thought about being a performer yourself? Was that ever something you considered? Not really. I've got one of my, you know how everybody has kind of unlived lives? My unlived life is definitely the one where I became an opera singer. I could really have seen myself doing that. I I did have singing lessons in my teens. I had quite a good sort of mezzo voice. Um, I have done a bit of singing since, although not very much, because when you work as a theatre critic, you know, you can't kind of go to a choir that meets in an evening because you're always having to miss sessions and all that. I mean, there's an awful lot of theatre normally in Scotland. You know, I could easily be out five nights every week, really, seeing theatre of various kinds. And, um, and, um, And so I've never really had time to pursue it, but I feel as if I do have this alternative life as, as a diva, as an opera star, I think I could have been quite good. And I think, I think it would have fulfilled a lot of things that I'm interested in, you know, drama, yeah. uh, communication with, with audiences. I think there's lots of opera that has actually quite a high kind of political and social content or context that good productions can bring out. Um, um, and although I'm not a huge opera goer, I think in a way it's the kind of summit of all art forms, you know, it, it, it demands such athleticism from its mm. performers, particularly the way it's done now, where you can't just be chubby and, and stand around being athletic with your voice, you know, you have to do the whole thing. Um, I just think, it, uh, yeah, I, I could have done that, I could. Um, I did do a bit of theatre when I was at school. Um, I don't think, actually, I've never really particularly wanted to be an actress, not okay. really. There are, there, are, there are some speeches that I like to do, or I would like to do if anybody was willing to listen to me as party pieces. I love Titania's speech from um, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Um, the one about, um, the one where nature has gone all wrong because she and Oberon have fallen out. The yeah. nine things Morris all filled up. But, and and the, the, the idea of, you know, spring flowers appearing in winter and, and all of that is, is just a wonderful speech about what goes wrong when people can't find ways of living in harmony with each other, you know. And it's to do with patriarchy, really, because what she's objecting to is him banging about in a patriarchal way, you know. Mm. And, and all of that. Um, um, I love that. I'm, I'm a huge... Shakespeare fan. I think that man was just possessed by language at a particularly kind of molten, flexible moment in the development of the English language. And he was just possessed by it in a way that you could never legislate for. I'm sure a lot of what poured through him was nothing to do with his own consciousness. It was just the language itself. Mm. Kind of speaking to you And, and I absolutely love that aspect of Shakespeare. And when I see Shakespeare productions, all I wish is that people would trust the language more. I mean, I know it's a bit intimidating, but once you let that language speak through you and hold you up, Mm. it does the work for you. It really does. Talking about the use of language and the patriarchy. um, This week in Scotland, 
in Scottish politics in particular has really shaken me, if I'm honest. Um, the attacks on our First Minister were, for me, taken to an unrecognisable level. I have no idea how she had the inner strength to come through it. And I think regardless of your politics or, or people's politics, surely anyone can recognise the attempts to smear her have been a witch hunt. And whilst I'm delighted and unsurprised that she was found not in breach of the ministerial code, what has really landed with me is the blinding disparity between how she's been treated for a much smaller accusation than to her male counterparts who've been accused of far bigger things and haven't been put through half of what she has. And I feel like we're in a time of digression. And I wonder as someone who covers politics daily what your observation is of the times we're living in. Well, I think I think you're right, Nicola, and I wrote a column about this just a couple of weeks ago. I think we're living in a time of backlash. I think there's been huge, in the last, well, I don't know, 70 years, there's mm. been huge progress for women, um, for gay and LGBT people. Yes. And for um, and for black people to some extent, I mean, there's uh, you know it certainly um, race is is still a huge issue, particularly in the United States, but also everywhere in Europe. Um, 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 so all of these um, issues of justice um, and equality have progressed over the last 70 years. It's no longer acceptable to openly discriminate against any of those groups in most contexts. Um, mostly, in, at least in Western countries, there are laws which are supposed to protect us from that. Um, and particularly, I think, for gay people, um, the transformation has been huge. You know, they can now get married, they can acknowledge their partners, they can have a legal um, relationship. Uh, and, and, you know, it's astonishing, really, to think that well within living memory, it was still illegal for people to have any kind of homosexual relationship at all uh, for men anyway it was never illegal for women so um so um you know we've got to acknowledge the huge progress that has happened but what i think is happening now is that there is a, a kind of a kind of instinctive almost uh, almost semi-articulate backlash against that which mm -hmm. doesn't often doesn't quite like to say what it means, which mm -hmm. is, I wish we could go back to the time when it was okay to beat up on women, beat up on gay people, beat up on black people. But that, that is really the emotional impulse behind it. I think that was quite a large part of the um, impulse behind Donald Trump's um, you know, political rise, yes. which in my opinion, is not over. I think it's been sort of um, halted at the moment, but you know, there's no um, guarantee that, that him or a movement very like his won't come back. Um, and I think that um, a lot of people are looking for excuses, for reasons to sort of halt this process. I think the whole unpleasant row over gender recognition, which actually affects only a tiny proportion of the population, um, you know, trans people are not numerous, and, yeah. and, and, and you know, their, their rights don't take away the rights of anyone else, and yet there's been this huge um, kind of emotional backlash against against the, the, the gender recognition um, legislation. Um, there's been um, there's been obviously a backlash against Black Lives Matter, which seem, just seemed to me to be stating the obvious. If you're living in a society where people behave as if Black lives do matter less than white lives, then it's important to say that Black lives matter and not of to course. be going, oh, but all lives matter. 
Of course, all lives matter, but the point is, at this moment, the thing that is important to assert in any society where black people are being disproportionately killed, or for that matter, disproportionately dying because of social disadvantage, which is what has happened in the COVID epidemic, mm-hmm. you know, the huge disparity between the death rates in ethnic minorities and um, in, the, in the general population. I mean, of course, it's important um, to, 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 to make these statements, and yet they provoke a backlash. You know, footballers take the knee, there's a backlash. Yeah. You know, some of them refuse to take the knee on the grounds that, oh, it's pointless. You know, all of the rest of it. And in all of these situations, of course, we should be guided by the people that have suffered the systematic disadvantage. Now, how this is affecting women is very complex because obviously women have made huge gains and women do hold more power than they used to you know the home secretary of the united kingdom is a woman you know um our first minister's a woman and and you know there was a time when all of the leaders of the main parties in hollywood were women so there are women now there um in positions um of power and influence but as you say they still seem kind of both socially and politically to be treated differently. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, I put a tweet out, an observation a couple of nights ago about it, saying Nicola Sturgeon being cleared is actually a win for every woman who has ever been held to a higher standard than a man. And incredibly, the tweet went viral. It's had more engagement than I have ever had in 24 hours in support from men and women who might not necessarily have previously been a Nicola Sturgeon supporter, as they may not of being an independent supporter for example but can still recognize what is going on and we're saying we see you we see what is happening and we will not accept this anymore now i'm going to move on to something very different uh, so the cats awards uh, the critics awards for theater in scotland for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what cats stand for is a wonderful yearly theatrical event which was established by yourself and mark fisher i think And even if we don't win an award, it's a great time for everyone in the community to come together and often it ends up as a 14 hour event for some of us (laughs) and then we roll home the next day. But I think a lot of people in the business would love to be a fly on the wall when all you critics are deciding the nominations. In my imagination, it is a super organized kind of town hall meeting affair with everyone with a designated role. I don't know, uh, Mark Fisher doing the teas, Neil Cooper on the sandwiches, Mary bringing in the cakes, Mark Brown and serving a cheeky aperitif, and uh, Tom Dibden on cabaret. (laughs) And then there is a really twisted part of me that wants to think it's like an episode of the thick of it where people flipping tables and disagreement and maybe a bit of blood on the walls. But seriously, how does it work? If you really loved something, but others are indifferent or on the fence, how hard do you push for that, Joyce? Um, well, uh, we, we do do all the judging in one day. I have to give credit where credit's due, actually, here. It was neither me nor Mark who invented this thing. It was Robert Dawson Scott. Uh, oh, sorry, Robert. When he was when he was um, when he was the critic for the Times in Scotland, and um, before he went to STV, and uh, uh, Robert um, just went round kind of cajoling us all into doing this, and you know you know what Robert's like very very charming, very persuasive. It's lovely. And yeah. He um, he was uh, brilliant. It would be interesting to talk to him actually for a coven because not many people have done what he's recently done, which is to make the transition from being a critic to being a playwright. Oh, yes. It's amazing. Um, but um, 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 anyway, so yeah, he was the founding convener. Um, well, it, 
it's actually not that easy keeping the cats together because, you know, it's a, it's a very, I mean, it's difficult being an actor in Scotland. It's equally difficult trying to make any kind of living out of being a theatre critic. I mean, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I've got to write about other things as well, um, politics and so on. And um, so in a sense, the group is quite fragile um, and it's difficult to recruit younger members because obviously it's difficult for young people coming into journalism to make any kind of living out of reviewing now, even though an awful lot of young journalists want to do it. It's something they're interested in. Yeah. They just can't get paid for it because so many people are willing to do it for nothing, you know, particularly if they're rich enough to be able to do it, do it for nothing. And it's the same problem in that sense as you have in acting. But um, how we do it? Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, we were really sorry that we couldn't have an awards ceremony this year because... Um, um, actually, 19, uh, 2019 to 20 was a really good year and it would have been lovely to have been able to have an awards ceremony last summer and celebrate that. And we were all lined up to do it at the Tron, which is a lovely place for a party and it was going to be great. Um, and then, of course, we had to cancel um, everything and we, we just cancelled everything, really. We cancelled the judging process and, and the whole thing. And then eventually we thought, well, let's acknowledge it anyway, just to remind people of of, of um, you know, so we had a Zoom rather than a room. So there we were in a Zoom rather than a room and fewer of us than usual because some people had just had to drop out. Some people have had bereavements because of COVID. Some people were just, um, you know, too busy, too preoccupied with family things. And, um, you know, some were homeschooling and they just couldn't do it. So it's fewer, fewer of us than usual, but there were still eight of us and we got in a Zoom and we did actually produce a list of, um, of nominees and winners for 2019-20. Um, I don't think we'll be doing anything for 2021 because obviously there hasn't really been much live theatre, if any. I think I've been to one live show in the last year, um, which was a walk with Neil John Gibson, very nice, but uh, not really enough to make a vibrant competition for the cats. But how we do it in normal years is we lock ourselves up in a room um, on a Saturday. Um, well, we do our nominations first. So we send in the nominations to Tom Dibden, who always collates the nominations and puts them in order and then we can see which things have got the, first, the most nominations so that's the kind of first draft of what, what the shortlist might look like but then we lock ourselves into a room from 11am to 6pm on a day and we go somewhere where we can get sandwiches and things sent in we've recently been doing it in the founders room at the festival theatre where they've got a cafe so okay. about, come about 1pm they send up sandwiches and we have constant coffee and all that and Mary brings biscuits actually rather than cake um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and um, yeah, we just fight it out. It can get a bit. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, there was one year when they gave the best play award to a play I just couldn't believe. I thought it was such a load of toss that they were all voting for it, and things like that happen, you know. And um, and 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 because there is nobody there, because there are no flies on the wall, and none of us is wired. I hope uh, we can just really talk freely. And of course, as as critics, I mean, we're quite strict in Scotland about not sharing our views, certainly not until we've all written our reviews. And then even after that, we often don't get much chance to talk to each other, you know, about the shows we've seen. And so in a sense, it's like, it's hugely enjoyable because it's your one chance in the year to get in the room with other people who are as engaged with it all as you are and really just talk it through, you know, what was it like? How did we, you know, what has really stayed with us? And one of the things we've noticed over the years is that you really can change the colleagues' minds in the meeting. If you are really passionate about something, 
you can make people vote for it. And, and, and we are all allowed to vote in the final vote. So even if you haven't seen something, if you've been really impressed with what your colleagues have said about it, you can vote for it. Um, time and again, that's happened. I mean, this time around, um, the signal man did really well. Um, Peter Arnott's uh, beautiful monologue for Tom McGovern based on the signal man that waved the train onto the bridge on the night of the Taybridge disaster. I think only three out of the eight of us had seen it, but the three that had seen it were so moved by it. And, and all three of us in different ways from different angles talked so eloquently about it that all the rest of them burst into tears and said, oh, we should see that, oh my God, you know. And, uh, and, uh, Phoenix on the move. And this, this can happen, and it has happened in the past. Ah, how interesting, because I would never have thought that. Um, we actually have an audience question for you now, Joyce. So this comes from Sharon from Glasgow. And her question is, how do you think the Edinburgh Festival has changed over the years? And does it need to change again? The Fringe, is, which is the biggest bulk of what everyone thinks of when they think of the Edinburgh Festival, because it's absolutely huge. Mm. I think the Fringe has come to a real moment of, of sort of, critical change actually I, I, I don't know what will happen to it it's a, a spon it's, it's a completely it really is an unprogrammed event the big venues program but the event itself is a spontaneous thing and that's what people just can't get their heads around it's an expression of freedom and it's got all the pluses and all the minuses of a free market rich okay. people prosper people who don't have a lot of money don't prosper, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or have to get public support to make it possible for them to appear on the fringe at all. Um, you know, it's, and yet at the same time, it does have that freedom and sometimes through it, voices that you would never have heard in, in any other way just come sort of exploding through because some brilliant new venue has appeared and decided to platform them, you know. And new venues do emerge. I mean, it's not a static scene at all. I mean, it's hard to think that 10 years ago there was no summer hall and it has now become possibly the most admired venue on the fringe in terms of the sheer excitement of its repertoire, you know organizational ups and downs with summer hall and finance is always an issue but um you know and, and people being properly paid or people getting what they paid for when they booked a venue always an issue at the fringe um you know but um what has happened with the fringe in recent years is such an explosive growth i mean the thing is it was pretty big when i started reviewing it in the early 80s and it's now at least five times the size it was then you know, the size of it is something people just, I mean, I can hardly get my head around it. And nobody could be in a more privileged position um, to, yeah. to, to view it and to see it whole than me. You know, yeah. I get free tickets for anything I want to see. I have professional time to go through the programme and try and get a handle on it. I, you know, I, I do that. I, well, I go through the theatre bit of the programme anyway. I don't see how anybody could go through the whole programme, not anymore. I mean, when I first started reviewing, I could review comedy and theatre. And there were yeah. so many links between comedy and theatre. And I loved doing both of them, but you couldn't possibly do that now. There's so you know? many shows, isn't there? I know. I mean, all the Scotsman can do now is review all the shows that claim to be new work. We right. can't review anybody's brilliant production of Richard III or anything like that because, you know, we've just got to divide it up somehow. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we just couldn't handle it. And, um, and, um, and because we've got the Scotsman Fringe First Awards, which are supposed to be for new work, we have to focus on that. Um, um, so, you know, if it's not new, it's, it's, it's not in my reviewing schedule for the Fringe. It's gigantic. It's 
Um, a lot of it is pure mince. A lot of it's just rich kids playing about. Um, um, it's far too white. It's far too English language dominated. Um, people have tried to do foreign language work on the fringe and there was a bit of a, a, a fad for that or a fashion for that in the, in the 80s and 90s, but it, it hardly works now. I remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember the wonderful um, to Manishvili Theatre from Georgia coming, the Georgian Film Actors Studio with Katie Dollitz. And, and they were busily doing their fantastic production of Midsummer Night's Dream in, in, uh, in a venue at the, they were big pals with Bill Burdett Coots, they were in the assembly rooms in George Street. And this whole party stood up and walked out about 10 minutes in because they thought it was from Georgia, USA, and they weren't gonna sit through something in Georgia. Uh, with a with a, oh with a, 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 a a sort of you know story um, thing in your program to help you follow it, it's just immense. And I just don't know if I don't think anyone can even predict how it will come back. I mean, it might yeah. come back bigger than ever. Who knows? I mean, yeah. maybe all the youth of the planet are just dying to go to the Edinburgh Fringe as soon as the COVID um, epidemic is over. Well, let's hope. Now, with every guest, we do quick-fire questions, and these are the fundamentals on which I judge a person. So be afraid, Joyce. Be very afraid. Are you ready? Here goes. Number one, TV or theatre? Theatre. The Bard or Burns? No, can't choose both. If it was a gun-to-your-head moment, Joyce? I suppose because of the theatre, I'd have to choose Shakespeare. The stalls or the royal box? Oh, definitely the stalls. City or countryside? <gasps> City with beautiful parks, which is what I've got here in Edinburgh. <laughs> the slosh or the Macarena? Definitely the slosh. Arthur Miller or Noel Coward? <gasps> oh, that agony. Maybe I'll choose Arthur Miller, who was exceptional playwright of the 20th century. I mean, you can learn nearly everything you need to know about the American century by reading Arthur Miller. Oh yeah, no, he was an exceptional writer. Robert Louis Stevenson or Sir Walter Scott? Oh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Virtue or sin? Virtue. I think virtue is more interesting. Sin, sin is easy and fashionable. A buffet or a la carte? <gasps> Definitely. Well, if it's a good buffet, I love a buffet. I love the feeling that I don't know what's there and I can just pick and choose. Opera or ballet? Oh, uh, opera for me. I, I, uh, I love the human voice. I like ballet, but I get quite bored. I feel as if there's not enough story and not enough voice or something. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't quite speak to me the way opera does. Independence or no independence? Independence. Fancy Nancy or Dress Down? Well, my sister and my stylish friend tell me that my wardrobe consists of 50 shades of porridge-coloured sweaters, which I'm wearing one of at this moment. So, <laughs> 50 shades of porridge, I'm afraid. I am quite fond of dressing down. I like, I like the feeling that, that, that you're wearing the clothes and the clothes aren't wearing you, you know? That's a very good note. But you always look very glamorous at the catcher words. <laughs> Interval ice cream or interval wine? Oh, ice cream, actually. I don't really like boozing at the theatre. I like to keep my wits about me. A beer or Bollinger? Also, the wine's usually crap, isn't it? Right, uh, beer, beer or Bollinger? Uh, definitely Bollinger. I love a glass of champagne. Oh, so do I. It's just such an occasion. 
Well, that concludes the quickfire questions. Thank you for joining me in the coven, Joyce. It's been an absolute joy. And thanks for sharing your time with me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, what an enlightening chat and great to get to know more about the lovely Joyce. There's not much she doesn't know about Scottish theatre, right? And here. What about that story about the, uh, hello on the stairs? I mean, that is some warm-up. Anyway, moving on. Next week, I have a very exciting guest, but I'm afraid there's an actual real embargo on what I can say. So, uh, watch this space. Or, uh, listen to this space. You know what I mean. Oh, eh, uh, I better go. I think that's the uh, paparazzi at the door. Until next week. <laughs>